What's up, movie friends? Welcome back to the show. This is Anthony. And this is James. We're going to finally do the original Spider-Man trilogy. We did do a Spider-Verse episode uh, like last year, but this is going to be focused on the original trilogy directed by Sam Raimi, starring Tobey Maguire as Peter Parker and Spider-Man. And this is our... You know, Spider-Man that we grew up with for movies, for movies, you know, Toby's our guy. We love Andrew. We love Tom, but we're, we're going to pick Toby 100 times out of 100. Yeah, and I think you really, for 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 us, when we were like 9 or 10 when the first one came out. No, we were 12. Oh, 12, sorry. Your, your years are yeah, off. Yeah. It I came out in 2002, X-Men. bud. I was thinking X-Men. But still, nothing had really been that visually stunning and dynamic for a family-friendly movie before. And yeah, you saved yourself there because I was going to say The Matrix <laughs> <laughs> and Lord of the Rings. But, but but Spider-Man changed the game when it came out, the original one, because, yeah, Superman was a big deal in the 70s and 80s and, you know, Batman in the 90s. But Spider-Man, when it came out, it was the first movie up to that point to gross over $100 million in its opening weekend. This movie took the world by storm it was massive and it was x-men had come out in 2000 so you you can't say that spider-man totally rejuvenated superheroes at the box office and for mainstream media but but x-men it did well but it didn't do like absurd numbers it was like 250 300 i think yeah whereas spider-man was almost a billion dollars 825 million okay that's and that's back in 2002 so that's a big deal back then so i think this brought about a major appetite for mainstream audiences to take another chance in superheroes. Yeah, and it was like a new direction for comic book films. Again, X-Men were great, and we loved Blade, obviously, and so it's not like they weren't popular, but Spider-Man took it to a whole new level, and I just love Sam Raimi as a director and his aesthetic, and him taking, like, his skills as a horror director from his past doing that, then bring it to a giant franchise comic book, and he just knocks these films out of the park, specifically the first two. You know, the third one we'll get into and its problems, but the first one is fantastic. The second one is probably top three superhero movie made ever of all time but i mean sam raimi his his vision is there in the first two i love it so much and i think he co-wrote them with his brother ivan yeah and he's actually he wrote number two and three i believe with ivan okay he was a surprising choice for audiences because he's most famous for making the evil dead but the reason why the studio chose him was because he was so much so passionate about comic books he actually is an avid comic book collector and he had over he had a collection of over 25,000 comic books and that's why the studio was like okay this guy knows his stuff he's clearly very passionate about the project so we think he's the right choice even though he has a background in horror with this setting and with the, with his vision he has for the character we think he's solid so i think that I don't think anyone could have pulled off what he did in terms of making this movie work for all audiences, which it does. And the visual effects just completely blew my mind when I was a kid. They hold up pretty decently. Spider-Man 3 probably holds up the best out of all of them, obviously. Yeah. Spider-Man 1, you know, there are some scenes where, like, CGI isn't that great, like, specifically when Peter's, like, running on top of the rooftops. It's that cool overhead shot, but it's like, yeah. it looks like a video game. Yeah, but it's hard to do a real person's face back then. But they, they pulled it off because we hadn't seen visual effects to that element of a of a person swinging on a web through cities it's incredible what they pulled off in the early 2000s with it yeah and some of the most thrilling aspects of the movies are just peter as spider-man swinging through the cities and Raimi came up with really inventive ways to portray that and we had the video game when we were kids and we loved just you know web slinging through new york city was awesome and there are some really memorable moments of the movies like in the second one when he swings through that 18 wheeler like in between the cart and the actual vehicle of itself and and there's so many great aspects to the web sling in the third one especially and also the ending of the second film it's so much fun just to watch spider-man doing his thing yeah i think the the action sequences are absolutely astounding 
in every single one of them, specifically to with Doc Ock versus Spider-Man. I think the their first fight on the building up the side of it, I think that's the best fight in the entire trilogy for sure. I disagree. I'd say it's the train. It's the train scene. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty cool too. I just, I love the building one. <laughs> but either way, they're so creative with, with their action sequences and we never seen anything like it before. And I still think that Spider-Man 2 the action is better than any of the other Spider-Man movies that have come out ever since. Yeah, I think that the the spectacle in the second one really brought it on another level because they're good. The the fight sequences in the first one are great, but they're still pretty limited with what they could do. With Go Goblin and Spider-Man at the at the parade was awesome, and then on the bridge is fun. But then the finale is inside that building, so they kind of lowered the scale whereas the second one just got bigger and bigger like you're battling on skyscrapers and then on a speeding train it's just unfathomable how epic the scale of this movie was absolutely and before we continue the best way to support raiders of the lost podcast is to, is to share us with your family and friends and become a patron at patreon.com slash raiders of the lost podcast patrons get perks like personalized videos podcast schedules top tier patrons get a monthly shout out on the podcast and the best perk of all is every patron two dollar five dollar or ten $10 tier has access to weekly bonus episodes of the podcast that no one else can listen to. Head on over to our website, raresoflostpodcast.com to check out all of our sources of content, our merch, our movie posters. Follow, subscribe wherever you're listening. Hit that notification bell. And thank you so much for tuning in around the world. And we were big fans of Spider-Man before the movie came out. We always watched the animated series. We had a ton of, like, Spider-Man toys. So we Yeah, were, ever since we were yeah, little, like, we, in the early 90s. Yeah, we didn't do comic books, but we did enjoy comic book characters. Like, we would watch the Batman series and the Batman anim animated movies, but we loved Spider-Man, too. So when the movie came out, it was a really big deal for us. Like, I remember after the movie came out, I would always draw pictures of Spider-Man and, and animations, and, and I was just obsessed with it. Do you remember we had that toy set that it was, like, a scene from, oh, yeah, like, an animated... But it was like Venom yeah. versus Spider-Man, and yeah. I loved being Venom, and yeah. you just are always Spider-Man. But I just, I love the baddies. Yeah, there's that barrel that spilled ooze out. Yeah, there was like yeah. slime that yeah, would yeah. get, yeah, that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> the toys in the 90s were so fun, guys. Yeah. But that's what's so great about this movie. Sam Raimi, he knew that he made it for kids, but also like adults can enjoy this movie too. It's really hard to make a movie that everyone can enjoy. Now Marvel has obviously tapped into that secret formula that works for everyone. But I think it's because of movies like this which paved the way for it. And not to mention Tobey Maguire, although, you know, he's a little old for this film, but I think this was in the time when, like, high schoolers <laughs> were still being played by 30-year-olds. Yeah. Because everyone at the school, like Joe Mangiello, um, not... Yeah, his last yeah name? this is like Joe Man Mangiello. There's another N in there somewhere. Manganiello. Joe Mangiello. <laughs> he makes Jello. <laughs> he's he's like 30 in this movie, easily yeah. as Flash. And then James Franco, I, I don't know how old he was, but was it Toby like 28, 29? 26. 26. Oh, he's 26? Yeah. He looks older than 26. Yeah, he doesn't have a young face. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, I mean, John Hughes movies. I mean, Ferris, Ferris Bueller... That's not a 16-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> but you're right. Audience, audiences were used to it. Now, younger actors are better nowadays, so they can cast young people. But back then, I think that younger actors weren't as well-trained or as good at the craft of acting. Where For a movie like this, $100 million budget, like we got to get some professional actors. Toby, being a child actor, he was... I couldn't tell you how many movies he was in before Spider-Man. He was in a ton of movies. Yeah. Um, like, remember the, the Good Son with Macaulay Culkin? Yeah, where, yeah, where yeah. Macaulay's evil. Yeah. <laughs> he falls off the cliff. Classic. <laughs> Classic movie. But Toby was a big star as a child actor leading into this film. It's not like it was his first go-around. I would say that's maybe my favorite part about the Tom Holland choice for the Marvel 
Spider-Man for the MCU is that he's actually of age of like a high schooler, pretty much. Like he was like 19 when he was cast. So yeah. he's a teenager. And, when he's, he's, and he's still, he still seems like a, he's a, he could yeah. pass for a high schooler. Yeah. And I, I love Tom, how he brought the, the innocence and the naivety and that like awkward charm. And he really plays that well. But, and then also what Toby brought to it was just, he feels like, he really feels like an outsider because Tom is really funny and very charming. But Toby in this movie, he really feels like a kid who doesn't have any friends. Yeah. I think there, you know, there are pros and cons to every Spider-Man. For Toby, of course, like you just said, he's a perfect outsider. Nobody really notices him in, in high school besides um, his buddy Harry. And he's obviously bullied, of course. He looks exceptionally ordinary. You know, Tom and Andrew are very attractive dudes. Not that Toby's not a good-looking dude, but he's not like... Like a chin, chisel chin. Yeah, like yeah. those two guys are like on they're, a different level. They're very level. handsome guys. But I think that plays to the benefit of Tobey Maguire, the character, and again, the shyness, endearing personality. He's a good person. But I think Toby does a terrific job with the action as well. But one con to him, I don't think he does the humor as well as Android, Andrew or Tom, but it he gets it done when they have to have a, a funny moment. I agree. He does. He definitely doesn't have the charm that the other two have. But but, but the ordinary quality, like and Spider-Man too, when he loses his powers and he starts wearing glasses again and he just looks like a a, a big dork. Like you're just like okay, there's that's Peter Parker. He's yeah. like a big nerd and like that's who he is. <laughs> <laughs> so it's he really pulls that part of the character off. But also you know. This is later on was eventually when the MCU and these movies started getting way more funny. They started playing off like the Avengers style of comedy and storytelling. Yeah. So this was pre-MCU. Even the Amazing Spider-Man movies were taking notes from Marvel for their humor. Exactly. And and we know we noted about Andrew Garfield, and I love him as Spider-Man. I thought he did an excellent, excellent job. But he was so cool. Like he skateboarded. Doing kickflips. He's doing he's he's a great skateboarder. He's super funny. He dresses awesome. He's super handsome. Great hair. But he has no friends. It's like, <laughs> come on, come on. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Andrew Garfield. But there are two things that I really enjoy about Tom and, to and Andrew's Peter Parkers that they don't really do on in the first amazing in the first Spider-Man movie with Toby. And I would say this is a con to the character in this film, is Peter Parker's supposed to be a super genius. They don't really show Peter's intelligence in school in the first Spider-Man movie, besides winning the science award at the at graduation, being like the president of the chess club. Understanding Norman's work. Yeah, I yeah. would like to have seen him doing some science stuff. You know, that would have been cool because Andrew's Spider-Man is like a genius engineer developing stuff inside of his room. Yeah, because in this in Raimi's movies, he only he like speaks to Octavius and he goes to class. And he speaks to Norman. He like dialogue wise shows that he's smart but we don't he does, they don't really show us how intellectually uh, um, um, how much more how, how smart he is <laughs> I got you uh, I'm not wicked smart talk to Mr. Hare come on kid <laughs> he doesn't really show with action how intelligent he is true and whereas 
Andrew and Tom's Peter Parker, they develop their own webbing. What I love about Raimi's Spider-Man is it's organic webbing. It's mm-hmm. not That's not how it's supposed to usually be in the comic books, but I really like it. Yeah, I really like the aspect of that, too. And I know a lot of fans weren't super happy about that, but I think it was it just kind of worked with, in terms of the character that Raimi was envisioning. He He's not a super engineer genius, it, it looks like, so it wouldn't make sense for him to be able to create the webbing. Whereas I like how in the, in the Andrew one, it's already established how smart he is. Like, he has all these contraptions in his room. And then I think the best aspect to the Tom Holland Spider-Man is he's already Spider-Man. Yeah. He already made his webs. Let's he's let's go. Like, no wasting no time. No Uncle Ben. And Iron Man just sees, he finds him and he's already fully fledged Spider-Man. So I really love that part about Tom's. Yeah. Plus, I love, like, the metal finger follicles. Like, when he's turning into Spider-Man, I love the transformation yeah. of Toby. Andrews is hysterical when he, like, is yeah. in the bathroom. He's, like, trying to, like, turn off the faucet and he's breaking everything. He's, like, turning the doorknob with, like, barely a, a finger's worth of pressure. Yeah. And he's, like, in his room, like, what's happening to me? What's happening? He's, like, Goku. But I also love Toby's transformation because they did change. Big change. <laughs> Big change. Raging hormones. <laughs> Where Toby went into the filming very skinny, very uh, low weight, but then he put on like, it looks like at least 15 pounds of muscle. At least, I mean, I would say 20 pounds of and muscle, And probably, yeah. t- they did that in a couple months so that they could continue filming in the movie. But the transformation, aesthetically, to see it visually like that is so cool. Yeah, and I believe he did most of the work as Spider-Man in costume, except for most of the stunt work especially the dangerous wire stuff but he trained in terms of like doing an intense amount of yoga and all sorts of like body mass workouts so instead of he's not like lifting tons of weights but he's doing body mass which means you're you're handling your own body weight in these um difficult positions in order to be able to crawl and look like a spider so in a lot of ways it's harder than lifting weights that yeah. kind of workout i love that aspect of toby's spider-man where he's crawling on the walls a lot like a spider especially like when he's falling down that chunk of wall when he's fighting harry in number three and he's like crawling on either side of it like a spider or like an insect it's really cool and you know toby like you said with his yoga whenever he's like climbing up a wall he's actually just on a flat surface they just move the camera to make it seem like he's going vertically but he's still doing the entire movement on his fingertips and toenails yeah like that first toe is not his toenail (laughs) (laughs) it's a late night guys (laughs) that first time he crawls up the wall is one of the best shots and it's such a simple camera technique but it looks so amazing it really it just you don't need anything else you don't need wires you don't need cgi you just a simple just angle the camera and have him walk as though he's going vertically and it, they really pulled it off and i think that's the testament to uh, sam raimi using so much practical effects in his horror movies understanding what will work in terms of if i put this in front of the camera the audience will believe it he knows a thing or two about uh, practical effects in movies if oh, you yeah. watch the evil dead it's just spaghetti yeah. coming out people like all, all over that movie <laughs> green spaghetti but if you're watching on youtube or on social media you may have noticed that anthony and i have brand new laptops on our desk courtesy of lg these are the 17 inch lg gram ultra lightweight laptops the cool thing about these is their aspect ratio is 16 times 10 rather than 16 times 9 which is more visual vertical space which is awesome for referring to notes and editing and i watch movies on this every night and they look amazing not to mention these are shockingly light like you wouldn't believe how like my my old computers and mac it's heavier than this thing and this thing is twice as big as it and so we'll put links in our youtube video video bio below to show for the lg lg gram the 16 inch and 17 inch models thank you lg and lg gram laptops for sponsoring the show these are terrific oh yeah 
anyways, let's get back into the show. Do you want to talk about some some more stuff? Or get... I just want to talk about uh, an important aspect to the movies is Danny Elfman's score. Yes. Well, the first two. Yeah. The, well, he did the yeah he didn't do the third one, but they used a lot of the themes in the third one. But his his score for this is it could be my favorite Danny Elfman score. Just like that opening theme with the strings and then the title credits his what he did is so fantastic it's really one of the best superhero scores without a doubt which is saying a lot because yeah. he did an amazing job in the batman mm -hmm. in 1989 so yeah. i mean he's he's a terrific composer but yeah you're right i think the spider-man theme it's got to be top three all-time superhero themes of all time like yeah. it's incredible what he did it's so awesome because there's so much going on in the song you know yeah. it's 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 diverse and there's I, I can't even describe it without like getting emotional. It's so incredible. <laughs> you all know. I'm sure everyone listening. What's those strings hit? I'm just like I get. It pumps me up. It's it like that percussion. It's pretty epic. Oh, yeah. All right, you want to get into the first movie? Let's go, man. All right, Spider Man. This came out in 2002, and what I love about this movie is it's fast paced. You know, within 16 minutes, we have Peter Parker established as well as the other characters in his life, um, including Aunt May. And Uncle Ben, you know, we have Harry uh, and MJ and, and obviously his bullies and stuff like that. He's established and he gets bit. And then also Norman is established, Norman Osborn, and he becomes a villain. And this all happens within 16 minutes 16 of the film. 16 minutes? 16 minutes so of the film. He becomes the villain in he 16? He takes the serum within 16 minutes. Wow. So they get all that accomplished, P Peter getting bit, Norman taking the serum so fast. They've and it's probably, it's really 15 minutes because of the opening credits. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that that's amazing because it feels like it's a lot longer than that. It's fast, man. I, I believe you because you. I'm sure you timed it. I, I pressed pause. I didn't time it. I just hit the, hit the pause button. But I mean, yeah, I sat I sat there with a the stopwatch. All right, go. All right, fifteen. <laughs> but this was this movie was such a surprise, and I really adore it. I think it's one of the best superhero movies of all time. And there's so much to it, whether it be like the gravitas of the storytelling and you have a great villain. And I think the writing is excellent, like you said, how they packed all that stuff in so quickly without feeling like it was rushed or like they went, went too quickly. And I just think all around the crew, the acting, the casting really knocked this movie out of the park. And that's why everyone loves it so much. Yeah, and it's the first time we see on film Spider-Man's origin story and also the death of Uncle Ben. You know, Peter and Uncle Ben, that's an important relationship to him in his life because um, he doesn't know who his parents were. They they died when he was very young. And so his uncle and aunt have been taking care of him. And Uncle Ben is, you know, trying to be a father figure to him in his life. And, you know, Peter accepts that the entire time until, you know, his hormones start getting to him. You know, uh, teenagers, raging hormones. <laughs> and also, you know, going through this transformation of Spider-Man, you know, it kind of pushes them apart a little bit. And, you know, Peter starts to act out like a normal teenager really would at that age. And David Fincher was actually asked to take a stab at this movie because David Fincher has always worked with Sony for the, most of his career. So a lot of his productions are Sony productions. So they were like, hey, do you want to do this? And he, he said he would do it, but he would have done the entire origin of him getting, the, getting bit, getting the powers, and Uncle Ben dying as an opening title credits. And so then he would have gone right into the Gwen Stacy storyline after the opening credits. And Nine Inch Nails would have done the opening <laughs> song because this is before it was like Atticus Ross and yeah. Trent Reznor doing the movies. But I think it would have been, I don't think it would have worked even close to as well as this because the entire origin of, to of Toby's Peter up to Ben's death is really important to the audience. We are really invested in it. Yeah. And when Ben dies, we feel like we really lost someone that we love and we understand what motivates Peter from then on for the rest of the movie. So I think that if that was done in four minutes, it wouldn't have felt the same. And I think Raimi was correct in saying, we need to take our time with how Peter Parker 
accepts the role as Spider-Man. Yeah, you know, he's not Bruce Wayne. He's not a child. So it's important to establish all the parts of Peter Parker's life, obviously specifically the relationships with Aunt May and Uncle Ben. Then also MJ, how he's been in love with her and then his relationships with Harry and, and just establishing the kind of person that he is. Like we said, an outsider. He's very intelligent. No one notices him. And he's just kind of floating by just trying to find his path in life. But I think it's important to establish all of that before. Yeah, and this movie has hands down one of the best villains in comic book history in Willem Dafoe's Goblin. He was so perfect. And like you, you said, he would make a great Joker. But I think Norman Osborn has a lot of the qualities of the Joker. You know, that chaotic sense of nature. That, yeah. that humor he finds in the evil acts he does. And that murderous laughter he he is so good at performing like here in Willem Dafoe's laughter in that new Spider-Man trailer it was the most exciting thing I've seen in, in a comic book movie in a few years yeah you know what I mean and he is so iconic as Norman Osborn and even before taking the performance enhancers he's still interesting <laughs> performance in, enhancers. that's what it's called that's what they call it <laughs> yeah right yeah yeah I think you're right it's yeah. pretty silly yeah it's like just called something cool instead of <laughs> yeah the uh, performance enhancers we need uh, like baseball we have one week left to get some results for us Norman <laughs> but um Norman was also was already an interesting character beforehand you know he he wasn't just just like the typical very rich father to the son who keeps failing out of of, of Every private, private schools, school. but um, you know he's clearly very intelligent. He's something of a scientist himself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna be dropping lines on something of a scientist. Myself. All episode, man. That's a great meme. This entire trilogy, and, has you so under, many, and you understood it. So many memes, but that's one of my favorite memes of all time. But Norman's an interesting character because he's motivated not by wanting anything bad to happen to anyone but he's motivated by self-preservation you could say and he doesn't want his company to fail so you know his first motivational incident is the board threatens to cut his funding if he doesn't produce the results on the performance enhancer serum within a week and then he tests it on himself which is a very ignorant thing to do probably but it's like a last resort because if he doesn't succeed this is probably his last straw and he'll maybe will lose everything I would argue, argue that's at first, but then once he's fully fledged as Goblin, he just wants to kill everything he sees. Not necessarily. Because he says when he asks Peter to join up with him, he's like, we could just keep killing and killing and killing. No, he doesn't kill everything he sees. Who does he kill? All of his board members and then the first person testing the new suit. and That's not everyone he sees. <laughs> he kills very specific people who yeah, like right. wrong yeah. him. That's who he goes after. So the board members wronged him by trying to cut the funding. Mm. And then that guy who saved, who ironically saves his life while he, after he takes the serum, he's like, <laughs> back, him out. He's like, back to formula? No, back to formula. Back to formula. So he kills him because he pissed him off about that. But he doesn't just, he's not a madman. Well, he's a madman, he's but a ma he's not just killing innocent people because he wants to. Sounds like you're defending him. I'm defending him. You said he kills everybody, everything he sees. That's a broad statement. All right, all right, all right. I'll, I'll, I'll teeter that he back. He kills people who wrong him. And then the second time he gets this crazy motivation is he seems to be at content in his place where Oscorp is doing its best. The stock has never been higher. Their their tests are going great and everything. And then the board decides to sell the company under him, underneath him without telling him. Steve Jobs style. Forcing Norman out. And then that's what motivates him to kill that board again. So it's like two boards, right? It's like the first, like the military board. So many boards. boards. So yeah. many boards with corporations. Yeah. <laughs> and then this third inciting motivation you could say is finding out that Peter is Spider-Man, who's his arch nemesis now. Yeah. So those are like his three big events that motivate him to become the Goblin and then continue his acts out as the Goblin. What I think is really cool about how they wrote the character is 
essentially Norman suffers from a serious case of split personality once he takes the serum. And what happens is uh, after the serum is put into him, Goblin becomes a personality within his mind, and he is battling the Goblin for control over his actions and control over his own mind. And some of the coolest scenes of this movie are Willem Dafoe just talking to himself in a mirror, having the conversations with um, the Goblin. And it reminds you of the Smeagol-Gollum conversations from Lord of the Rings, that back and forth between the split personality. And I really love that aspect of the writing. They did a fantastic job really making – because this character on the the comic books is – it's like a goblin. He's, <laughs> He's literally a green goblin. Yeah, but they they really uh, brought it down to reality and made us feel like, oh, this is a reality that could happen. Yeah, and the cool thing about what Willem Dafoe did in the filmmakers for the performance was when Norman Osborn is Norman Osborn, he has pristine straight teeth. But then when Norman Osborn is like possessed by goblin talking, whether it's in the reflection of the mirror or underneath the mask, he's got uh, Willem Dafoe's naturally – imperfect teeth which make it like seem more menacing between the two characters because he has big canines yeah and i would say yeah it's kind of a split personality but you could also say it's maybe even more of a possession in a way where you know goblin possesses norman at times and kind of takes control of the body without norman even noticing and i would say by the end of the film it's goblin's taken over completely 100 percent. by the third act that's totally goblin because you norm you could feel like norman was still in there fighting for control because when he first found out like the the members of the board were dead. He was very surprised when he saw it on the paper. Yeah. And shocked by the news because he clearly doesn't remember it happening. So Goblin took control of the body. But then by the, the third act, when he's when they're on the bridge and he's given Spider-Man the choice between MJ or the um, little trolley of kids, that's totally... Goblin's taken over, I think, completely the body. Oh, 100%. Even later on when they're inside the, the building... And Goblin's trying to trick Peter into saying, thinking like, oh, it's me, it's it's Norman, yeah. I, I've been like a father to you. That's really Goblin, Be for a sure. son to me. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, again, Norman Osborn, interesting, fascinating villain. He's awesome as Goblin. They have some epic fights in this, whether it be the parade fight, which is so much fun to see on that grand scale, and the CGI is really great in that. And then also that fight inside of the burning house, which is such a shocking horror roots reveal, like Sam Raimi showing his talents of... Showing, knowing how to scare an audience when he's pretending to be the old lady in the yeah. house and he turns around and it's Goblin's mask. It's super scary. <laughs> it's very good. Yeah, and then the final battle in that when when he when he's messing, church right yeah it looks like an old abandoned church when yeah. he's messing up Peter like that's really affecting to the audience. You're yeah. like, oh man, is he gonna get out of this alive? Yeah, and speaking of Goblin, we have. The eventual Goblin Junior, <laughs> little Gobby Junior. Goblin Junior, you're gonna cry. Harry Osborn, who's, despite the fact that like he doesn't seem that complicated of a character, I think there's more complexity to Harry in the first film that we eventually learn in two and three, because Harry at first he rejects his father, doesn't want anything to do with him. He's kind of embarrassed because of his wealth and showing up to school in the Rolls Royce and everything. Or is it a Bentley? I can't remember. It's a Rolls Royce. And um. Yeah. He doesn't want his father's attention, and you know you can tell that his father hasn't really been a father to him his entire life. No, he wants his father's attention, but he's embarrassed by who his father is. But you I could say, say that because of his embarrassment, he rejects his father. He doesn't really want to look at him. He's like, "Oh, just leave me alone, Dad." But mm-hmm. then, throughout the course of the first film, you can watch Harry's wardrobe specifically. He wants his father's attention more and more as he goes through this storyline and like that scene that's a great point yeah so the scene where it's the parade and mj wears the red dress and this is harry and mj have been dating now he asks mj why didn't you wear the black dress because that's my father's favorite color which is technically not a color right Mm -hmm. and then um 
throughout the course of the film, as you watch Harry, his outfits become darker and darker until the last two scenes he's in, he's wearing complete black outfits and yeah. darkened outfits. You could tell in the Thanksgiving dinner, he definitely has a, a Norman-esque outfit on. Yeah. For sure. Whereas in the first few scenes, especially at school, he's definitely dressing like his own style. He's trying to dress like a normal kid at first, but then mm -hmm. even he defends his father at the Thanksgiving dinner despite him being incredibly rude to MJ and yeah. he says that you don't know you don't know anything about my father. If I'm half the man he is, then I'll be lucky, something like that. But then watch because he's trying to win his father over and you could argue that his father never really even loved him. He was always a disappointment to him. But Look at that face you're making. <laughs> <laughs> you're disgusted. Dis I'm acting, you know, I'm, I'm Willem Dafoe. I'm the goblin. <laughs> <laughs> I disgust. I hate Harry. You failed every private school I sent you to. <laughs> so he definitely has some kind of inferiority complex and daddy issues for sure. Oh, absolutely. And it is a very complex character. That and it, it works a lot better than the Dane Dehan version of Harry, which I really didn't like too much at all. But Franco really knocked it out of the park, and I think it was really well written for yeah, sure. Yeah, and Harry, he's a little more outgoing than Peter Parker, which is why he starts to flirt with MJ despite the fact that, you know, Peter's had their entire lives to make a move on MJ, which is why when Peter finds out that they're dating, he's like, you're right, I never made a move. So Harry eventually wanted to do that, but you could say that maybe he's jealous of Peter in ways, and that's why he went after the same girl that Peter was in love with. Yeah, Peter's a simp. <laughs> oh my god <laughs> but speaking of mj I, I think that kirsten dunst she did a great job with what she was given yeah um and and the first movie and even the second one okay i can i can i can understand damsel in distress i can understand that but by the third film she's still screaming and still getting held captive and it's like they, I think they just missed an opportunity with making a really great female lead in these movies. She's sure. always just hanging by yeah. webs or from towers. Yeah. And unfortunately, her character arc is really just focused on the men she dates from Flash to Harry, then professing her love to Spider-Man, to, then to of Peter, then to Peter for Peter. And then in the other movies, she starts to date other guys. So really, MJ's just kind of a victim to that damsel in distress, the constant love interest of the main characters of the film. And that's where I think they really improved in the Amazing Spider-Man pair where Gwen Stacy is such a great character. She's vital to the plot each time. And also, she has her own thing going on for sure, where I think MJ is, like you said, defined by her relationships. And you don't really know much about her outside of, you know, just her the father. Her, yeah. And you don't really feel like she has her own story in this story. Well, she... MJ does have a story in her own thing, like her play and her acting. That's her very important thing that her character does throughout the course of the films. That that's pretty much her defining quality is her life on stage and how that affects her throughout her relationship with Peter, especially in two and three. But also the interesting thing that the filmmakers did with her with her plays and with her Broadway singing is her in even her jazz club singing all the plays and all the songs she she sings they're metaphors for her relationships you know the first play is talking about the um should I trust this man again? Uh, I think so. Actually not. And then she's singing the song about how I never want to love again. And then Peter walks in and it, unless it's us. So like every song or, or play that she's in is related to her relationships. Yeah, I definitely noticed that for sure, especially that that play in the second one. It definitely felt like she's that play was written about Peter. Mm -hmm. So I think it was a little too on the nose for that. I would say. I just but. yeah. I just wish she she had more to do with the plot than being. Obviously, all the villains, they attack the heart. You know, that's what uh, Norman taught Harry. That's what they all do. They they attack the heart. 
And so they attack M. They go after MJ pretty much every time. Yeah, but it, by the third one, it just got old. Yeah, like, I agree. It was just she's was... hanging from a, a skyscraper again. And I'm sure Kirsten Dunst. Yeah, she got paid, but by the third time, she she couldn't have been enjoying it. And it, the they even didn't use any of. She didn't scream in the third film. They used her audio screams from the second and first film and dubbed it into the third film because she didn't want to scream on film anymore. I don't so blame she, her. So she was clearly sick of doing it. And also, she's always, like, even partially infi practicing infidelity on, on yeah. the people that she dates. It's kind of ridiculous for her character. Like, yeah. you couldn't do anything better with her? And also, like, in terms of her, I know she has the acting, but you don't even know anyone else she talks to outside of Peter and Harry. She well, doesn't have her own relationships of, with other people except Kind of for the with boyfriend. Aunt May, but, you know, Peter and Harry are always in the room. Yeah. And I guess you could say her other fiancé. Yeah. That's it. But yeah, you're right. And the members of the play for sure, like that. that okay, what are their names? The girl that <laughs> she acts with in, in Spider-Man 2, the other girl in the play. Oh, wow. Sounds like a great character. The, the dark-haired woman. Dark-haired woman. Yes. <laughs> That's probably where, her. Where would you rate that character? That's probably her cast So, But anyways, the trilogy, I think they did do a disservice to MJ, the character from the comics, because she's so integral to the plot and to Peter's life. But to, you know, just subject her to just that part of the stories and, and the arcs, it's kind of disappointing. Yeah, but I think... I think that comic book movies have learned from then on how to include everybody in the story in more of an equal way for sure in terms of the plot and then uncle ben's a very important character we've already talked about him where he gets gunned down but him and peter you know they start to have their disagreements and you know peter he's starts to become un unreliable as he gets his spider-man powers he doesn't show up on time to paint the kitchen with uncle ben but don't worry, they left uh, the food in the oven for him, so he's good to go. But you could tell Uncle Ben's a very forgiving man. And, you know, he's a very good father figure for Peter in his life. But although Peter is getting sick of his routine of constantly lecturing him because Peter wants to do what Peter wants to do because he's a teenager. Yeah, and that's when we get the famous line, with great power comes great responsibility. And that line is, when you think of that line, you're like, oh, that's Spider-Man. Yeah. And because Peter's so obsessed with MJ, you know, he wants to... It's creepy sometimes. To... He's, like, taking her photo without her knowing. He takes, like, four snaps yeah, of her. It's, it's awkward. It's a bit odd. <laughs> it's a bit, like, right before he gets bit at the spider exhibit. <laughs> it's a little weird. But, uh, well, first of all, how many it... how many people have envisioned themselves getting bit by a radioactive spider after this movie? Uh, I, I wish it happened to me, exactly. honestly. But, um... but then when he is taking her photo for the paper, he's, like, getting so excited. It's... Cringe. And it's just like a great close-up of her. Such a simp. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, were, what were we on about before we're simping? Ben. Oh, yeah, so Ben. And then Peter wants to win money to buy a car to impress Mary Jane because that's what Flash has. Flash has a cool car, so he thinks that will win Mary Jane's heart over. And he has that great battle against Bonesaw, but he gets Bonesaw. He gets he gets gypped on the cash prize, which he deserves, but the guy won't give it to him and lets the robber go, and that robber eventually kills Uncle Ben when he's carjacking him. Yeah. It's a really tragic moment of the movie. What's his um wrestler name that he wants to come have... he wants to be the human spider. <laughs> human spider. <laughs> it's horrible. And then the the great Bruce Campbell cameo as the uh, announcer. Is he the announcer in the first one? He's the announcer. So he also has the cameo in number two he's where the usher. he's the usher at the play. And then in number three, he is the host of the French restaurant. Exactly, yeah. So they're all his cameos. Oh, yeah, yeah. Bruce Campbell's the man. Yeah, he's awesome. But also, this is a really important moment because Peter let him go, which caused the death of Ben, Uncle Ben. And also, Peter didn't make a move on the guy technically, but he— Just like MJ. 
the guys fell to his death because he was in an altercation with Spider-Man. But it's epic to see, you know, when, when Peter finds Uncle Ben and holds his hand while he dies in the ground. And then Peter, as Spider-Man, like, goes on his first Spider-Man mission to find the guy who killed Uncle Ben. It is so epic. Yeah, he, he basically forces himself how to learn how to swing by webs. Just by doing it, because he had never done it before. Yeah, not really that time he crashed, but to actually travel doing it, so and much fun. The motivation's epic, but it's, it's a cool little scene to like watch him. Like this is the first mission of, of Spider Man's, and Toby can really get those tears out. Yeah, that dude can cry. He cries a lot in this trilogy. Yeah, he he does a lot of. He's he's, he's a good actor. Very, very good actor. Yeah, for, for sure. sure. Jinx. <laughs> <laughs> Even the laugh was a jinx. <laughs> this is getting creepy, guys. <laughs> but, but what I love about the the climax of the movie is Goblin's um, plan. Of trying to have Peter choose between one fate or the other fate, whether it be MJ or that little trolley of children, it reminds me of the the boats in the Dark Knight movie, where it's a it does it's not as easy as it seems. You know, what I mean, it's a difficult decision that you're putting this character in. He has to make a tough choice because when characters have to make difficult choices, it's great screenwriting and great conflict. Yeah, but also up to this point, we get to talk about Peter suiting up, where he actually makes his first suit. And I think I think Toby has the best suit of all the Spider Man, specifically the Spider Man. Kids here, you say that the Spider Man Two Superman uh, Spider Man suit is so epic and cool. Yeah, I, I this is my favorite too. For but sure. I mean, he's great at drawing. His his what he drew for Spider Man concept art was pretty pretty spot on. Yeah, what can he do? It's pretty epic. <laughs> he, should, he should not have a photography job at the Daily Bugle, but should instead do like animation. Or I something. love Jonah Jameson. He's, he's so like the, awesome. one of the best characters. He's so funny. And in number three, he's probably the best character because everyone else just eventually starts to fade away. Everyone's such a sourpuss in the third one. Yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but it's a great climax because he eventually saves both MJ and the trolley of children, and then him and Goblin have that one-on-one fight that we talked about earlier on. Godspeed, but Spider-Man. But then uh, he outsmarts, or Osborne thinks he's going to outsmart Peter and kill him by tricking him into saying, thinking that he's like, he's Norman, he needs his help, but then, you know, he ends up killing himself with his glider. Yeah. Didn't didn't count on that spider sense, bro. And then... One of the most important moments for the trilogy going forward is when Spider-Man brings Norman's body to Harry's apartment, or I guess that you could say that's just a baller pad on the top of that skyscraper in New York City. I wouldn't even call that an apartment. Oh, that's not an apartment. What would you even call that? Um, what's it called? There's a name for it. Um, being super rich. <laughs> Keep talking. I'll think state. of it. Yeah. <laughs> and um, this is going to be something that motivates Harry later on to obsess over stu- or finding out who Spider-Man is and killing Spider-Man. And it was a really decent thing of Peter to do to save them the embarrassment of revealing that Norman was the goblin. Oh, absolutely. To authorities. Absolutely. And ironically, uh, at the funeral for Norman Osborn, MJ confesses her love for Peter, but Peter has learned, especially with the attack on Aunt May, the attack on MJ, that the ones he loved are always going to pay the price. Even Uncle Ben paid the price. So it's up to him to just bear responsibility for Spider-Man alone and not let anyone close to him like MJ. Even though he's loved MJ since he was a little kid, he has to deny her love. Super sad. But then we get that final ending when he's swinging through the city. is awesome. It's pretty dope. Epic, epic ending. I love this movie. Yeah, the first one is fantastic, guys. It's it's so, so good. You know who's got a mini little role in this movie is Octavia Spencer. She's, oh, she's at the wrestling ring. Yeah, she's the, yeah, tic- she's, the yeah, ticket she's at the woman. Counter. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. I, I was watching the other night. That's Octavia Spencer. Yeah. Wild. Amazing. You want to do some trivia for it? Yeah, sure. Okay. Tobey Maguire said that he had never read a Spider-Man comic book, but took the role because he liked the script so much. Wow. Pretty good. Willem Dafoe performed 90% of his own stunts. 
You can tell he's under that mask a lot. Yeah. You can see those teeth. Yeah, he's super skinny too, so you can tell it's not a stunt man. Yeah, his voice. Yeah, in the goblin suit, he's like, yeah. that's a 145 pound man. <laughs> yeah. He's got little skinny legs, you can tell. <laughs> the scene in which Peter Parker catches Mary Jane's lunch tray involved no CGI at all. With the help of a sticky substance to keep the tray planted in his hand, Tobey Maguire eventually got the take after 156 tries. Hugh Jackman revealed that he was supposed to have a brief cameo as Wolverine. Jackman actually showed up in New York to film the scene, but the entire plan was scrapped when the crew couldn't get access to the Wolverine costume from X-Men. Like, they couldn't get access? You don't need... Do you need the cap, the costume? Just have him there. Jeans and the leather jacket. That's it. It's Wolverine. That's like, it. Just show, give him some claws. That sounds like a fake excuse. Yeah, a super fake excuse. There's, there's probably like a money thing or something. Yeah. The original trailer for Spider-Man had footage of Spider-Man thwarting a robbery of robbers in a helicopter. Now, what he did is he chased the helicopter through New York City and eventually captured the helicopter and stuck it in his webbing in between the two twin towers. They eventually had to cut this out of the film because of the events of 9-11, but you can actually find the footage online of this trailer. The smoke in the lab during Norman Osborn's transformation was originally white smoke, but then digitally altered to green. Director Sam Raimi wanted to use real green smoke, but went with the CG effect when prop designers could not create a colored smoke that was non-toxic. Fooled me. Looked real as hell. Looks legit. Yeah. To acquire his bumped-up physique. Bumped up? Who wrote that? (laughs) (laughs) Tobey Maguire went through a strict five-month regimen of exercise, weight training, and martial arts six times a week, as well as eating a high-protein meal four to six times a day. One of the chief difficulties that Tobey Maguire experienced during the famous upside-down kiss scene was that his sinuses kept getting filled up with water as he he performed the stunt in the pouring rain. Let's, uh, you want to go into our intermission? Let's do it. And then we'll get into films two and three. But before we go into that intermission, you know, as you go through adolescence, your body starts to change. You're going to have to start grooming yourself. And if you want to, you know, appear dapper to those around you. So I highly suggest that you hop on the web, go to manscaped.com and get the lawnmower 4.0 trimmer using our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. This brand new groomer is waterproof, skin safe, has a 7,000 RPM motor. Wireless charger, built-in light. It's amazing. You can use this in the shower, in the dark. It's pretty. It's pretty epic. I recommend not doing that, but you can if <laughs> you could if you wanted to. Um, fellas, you gotta get these products. Manscaped has sent us everything from their boxer briefs, their their lawnmower 4.0 groomers, their their colognes, their deodorizers, their body wipes. Everything's fantastic. I recommend their performance package 4.0s, which has a bundle of ter- terrific products. Use our coupon code at checkout at manscaped.com. Raiders of the Lost for twenty percent off and free shipping worldwide. All right, let's head into the intermission. And we're going to begin with our usual movie quote competition. The huge. And I have two, one from a fan and one from me. This is from Dominic Swain. I don't believe this. A man of your legendary prowess drinking effing rain. That's like seeing a lion eating some hummus. Say it again. I don't believe this. A man of your legendary prowess drinking effing rain. That's like seeing a lion eating some hummus. Drinking rain? Who drinks rain? Think of it as uh, with a British accent. Is it Sherlock? No. I don't know. It's uh, Simon Pegg in The World's End. Oh. Gary King, when he's talking to Nick Frost's character. Oh, yeah, because he's he quit, sober. Yeah, he quit drinking. Oh, that's a great quote. He, call, he calls it just water and rain. Mm. All right, this one's for me. If you lose the last game of the season, nobody gives a shit. Uh, I know this. 
It's Moneyball. Nice. Yeah. Billy Bean. Billy Bean. Good job. Ben Rapid. Good job. One Thanks. for two. Ben 500 kid. <laughs> nice. All right. Here's my quote. Redemption? Sure. But in the end, he's just another dead rat in a garbage pail behind a Chinese restaurant. Sounds familiar. Say it again. Redemption? Sure. But in the end, he's just another dead rat in a garbage pail behind a Chinese restaurant. I don't know. It's fantastic, Mr. Fox. Oh, man. <laughs> That's a good quote. Yeah. That's obscure. All right. Guess this movie release year. Interview with the Vampire, The Vampire Chronicles. Starring Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt. And Kirsten Dunst. And Kirsten Dunst. I see what you did there. Yeah. Kept her in her the first loop. role. She's crazy in that movie. Is that her first movie? It's her first one. Super talented. Okay. I'm going to go in 1994. Bada bing. Yes. You got it, kid. Okay. Guess this movie release year. I'll try. Platoon. 19. Let's see. I'm going to go 1981. 86. Oh, man. It's way later than that. I knew it was, I figured it was 80s, but. Yeah. I went yeah. all Willem Dafoe quote trivia. Nice, nice. All right. Movie pop quiz time. Toby Maguire has a cameo in the film Tropic Thunder. What is the cameo? He plays the priest in the opening trailer with uh, Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, it's called Satan's, Satan's Alley. Alley. <laughs> <laughs> he stars opposite Kirk Lazarus. The film won five Academy Awards, including Best Picture. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> the end. They like whisper, like. And then they go uh, four-time Academy Award winner Burt Lazarus, and then one-time Kirk. Kirk Lazarus, and then MTV Movie Award Best Kiss winner Toby McGuire. Yeah. <laughs> I love that opening That's of that movie. so funny. All their so trailers. Funny. So good. All right. Here's my quiz question. Which Lars von Trier movie in which did did Willem Dafoe star in? Oh, um, Antichrist. Yes. Yeah. That's a really good movie. It's really messed up, but... That's awesome movie. Very, very trippy and artistic. All right. Um, biggest hater of the week, who we got? We have two. Oh, we got two. Bi- we had we got a lot of hate in the last yeah, we week, got guys. A lot of hate. Quite a bit. Some guy posted a TikTok video making fun of there's this other, not even a podcast, just a TikTok account of two guys that talk about movies, but it's super scripted and the way they talk is so so forced. Their username is it's like just, just something nobody's. podcast. They yeah. don't have a podcast. They yeah. don't. They're not on any platforms. It's just TikTok videos. Yeah. So, but, so one guy goes, "Oh, what's that?" And then the other guy says it, and it just sounds like so fake. It's very rehearsed. And yeah. so this guy actually made a pretty funny video saying those two. He, and he made fun of it saying those two guys on that totally not rehearsed podcast. And then some random guy tagged us in it and said. Raiders of the Lost podcast are kind of trash. Like, come on, anyone can read the IMDb trivia pages. And then I commented, well, if you actually watched our show, you'll see that it's one and a half hour episodes in which we talk about films in depth. This might even go longer than yeah. that. And he said, and then he said, I'd rather get a chainsaw anima than listen to your trash podcast. What's your address? I'll bring the chainsaw. Sounds like haters gonna hate and haters gonna hate. Absolutely. He's just jealous because he doesn't have a podcast. For sure. And he has no friends. <laughs> <laughs> People just don't like themselves, so but, they gotta bring others down. But a lot of our fans came to our defense. Yeah. We got the best fans. Yeah. The That's best. Why. And then also in that video, this one just cracked me up. So this guy, I think he was trying to defend us. And he said, Deathless, this, this guy's name is Deathless on TikTok. He said, their podcast really isn't terrible. 
I watched theirs on Get Out, and it was bearable. <laughs> Such a backhanded I was compliment. Like, is that even a compliment? No, it's Thank not. You. It's not. I, we're not terrible, and we're bearable. Yeah. That's like the, the lowest form of a compliment you can give I someone. I feel like we're pretty good for the movie podcasts out there. We yeah. might be one of the top three yeah. in terms of listening quality and yeah. listening entertainment-wise. We're not uh, terrible. <laughs> we're like, bearable. We're bearable. Nice, nice. Thanks, we guys. Thanks for it. bearing with our show, everybody. <laughs> All right, we have two supporters of the week, and these are people who definitely bear our show. The first, first one is Christian Testa, and they left a five-star review. Extremely entertaining. It's way more than bearable, by yeah, the way. it's way more. Look up the definition of bearable. <laughs> Extremely entertaining is way better. If you look like, if you like a perfect blend of film analysis and behind-the-scenes breakdowns of how the movie was actually made, you'll love all caps, all caps. Raiders of the Lost podcast. Not only do the hosts cover every type of movie, but they fill their episodes with interesting facts and funny moments. Since they don't script their videos, they know what's up. They usually have pretty organic and fun to listen to conversations that make me feel like I'm sitting there with them. My only problem with them, with them is they haven't done episodes on Blade Runner or Avatar. Unsubscribe. <laughs> we gotta do Blade Runner versus Blade we, Runner 2049. We do it. That would be. A we dabbled in one. 2049, but that deserves like an hour long discussion. That was a while ago too. And then we did. We have another five-star review from Ethan Reed. Love this podcast. This is my absolute favorite podcast. I listen every Monday and Thursday. Great perspectives and facts. Keep it up, gentlemen. Ethan, thanks so much. I'm sure you're going to be pretty excited to hear your name right now. Appreciate it, Ethan. You're the best. You better be listening right now. It's Monday or is it Thursday? It's Monday. It's Monday. He's listening. It's a Monday episode. Ethan, thanks for listening. (laughs) (laughs) On this day in film history, today is September 6th, 1984. Amadeus came out. 2010, The King's Speech came out. It's Idris Elba's birthday, Jane Curtin's birthday, and Akira Kurosawa passed away in 1998. Oh, so sad. Unfortunately. One of the best directors of all time. Yeah. My streaming recommendation this week is the TV show Fleabag on Amazon Prime, uh, written and directed by Phoebe Waller-Bridge. She's super talented, and it's a really fun show. Really, really good show. Yeah. Cool. All right, let's head back into the episode and get into Spider-Man 2. Let's go. Which came out in 2004, and this is arguably it's the best spider-man movie ever made it could be the best marvel movie ever made as well pre and post mcu and the mcu what we mean is since iron man on that mcu because spider these this spider-man trilogy was columbia and sony and it was marvel enterprises at the time it was not they just had to give marvel credit because they own the characters yeah but you know that's why it's you know has nothing to do really with the marvel productions that we know today marvel was not making movies at this time they were just you know comics and TV shows and stuff like that. Marvel Entertainment, the production company, was formed and they first made The Incredible Hulk. Yeah, and so what I love so much about this film is it starts with the incredible opening credits that we hadn't really seen anything like this to the extent, I think, in superhero movies, but it's one of my favorite opening credits of all time. Yeah, with the animation. Yeah. It's really great. And, you know, kind of tells the story of what happened in Spider-Man 1 and kind of a little glimpse at what's going to happen in Spider-Man 2. Some directors hate doing opening credits and some directors love it david fincher someone who loves doing opening credits chris nolan hates it his movies just start after the opening logos of the studios but i think if it's it harkens back to old films which always had opening credits so i think that it's like a a way of a calling card to film history when you do an opening credit like this i think it's fun with these kinds of movies i mean nolan i have no issue with what he does and i think a lot of directors have started to copy his style of the way he kind of does it like abruptly like let's get into it not that he's the first person to do that but he kind of popularized that for blockbuster films but i think i i like it with movies like this in marvel films especially and i think that this is Probably the third best superhero movie ever. Maybe the second. I think the top three 
possibly uh, it's Dark Knight and then maybe Infinity War and then Spider-Man 2. What about Logan? Logan's Logan great. is typing on a keyboard very aggressively <laughs> right now. Logan's like top 10, maybe. Top what? 10. I put Logan top three for me, man. Well, this is my list. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Sorry. I, I Not everything's mean, about you. So, well, I, I want everything to be about me. But, <laughs> but the reason why I don't think Spider-Man could ever top The Dark Knight because The Dark Knight allows for um, really deep storytelling and really intense, mature, mature storytelling. You have villains who are literally like doing horrible things and you can be graphic with the storytelling and you can be very dark with the storytelling and so it gives you more more richness of what of the template you're working with whereas spider-man it can i think can only go so dark spider-man in a lot of sense still has to be very fun and very light yeah the transformation of bruce wayne's character throughout the trilogy versus peter parker's transformation in this trilogy they're kind of incomparable yeah peter changes and he becomes a better person towards the end and he goes through a lot specifically in spider-man 3 but that's you know that movie's got its issues but i think yeah you're right the batman trilogy by chris nolan is kind of untouchable the dark knight will never be topped i don't think by a su another superhero movie yeah and but this this movie it improved upon the first one in so many ways even though the first one was a perfect film i mean with this film you have amazing spectacle and action the scope got expanded the storytelling is still just as good the love story is really there this time and the emotional stakes are high and the dramatic stakes are high and you have an, another excellent villain i think the dialogue is way better in this film there are some dialogue moments in the first film that that lines are kind of cringy or oh boy I, yeah i think so, yeah like some lines don't age completely well into the contemporary times because i mean it's a 20 year old movie almost yeah. but um i think that the script for spider-man 2 is just so much tighter so much better and it's it's somehow is just like even like twice as better of a film, but it, the action everything's increased. But like we always say, what you want from a sequel is bigger action, more emotionality from your characters. It's about emotionality. emotionality. <laughs> action Jackson can't cry. And also, <laughs> <laughs> second reference to Tropic Thunder today. Um, touching on more themes and more thematic elements and more characters and better villains, better characters, and, and increasing those character arcs throughout the trilogy. Yeah, and on top of that, the origin's out of the way, so we get to just, just it's all Spider-Man. And also, Peter Parker is out of high school. He's not a kid anymore. You know, he's he he lives in the city now. He has a real job. He's a, he's a big boy job, you know. I mean, he sucks of, at it. Yeah, he's horrible. <laughs> I mean, Pizza Time's so funny. Yeah. But, I mean, Peter's terrible at his job because one of the main themes of his character in this film is breaking promises and being dis a disappointment to people. And he's always late. He's perceived as lazy. He's even more of an outsider in this film than the first one. He's brilliant but lazy, failing out of school, doesn't even remember his own birthday because he's so consumed with being Spider-Man every day as well as being Peter Parker. And that's what makes this movie so great because the the journey of the character because he goes on, he goes through a major transformation and it, even the third one what even though it's not that great of a movie, he still also has an intense journey as a character. He changes a lot whereas this one it's it's uh he's trying to struggle between two lives like what he wants is to have a normal life and to be with mj but he still feels that he has an intense responsibility to be spider-man and then this becomes such a conflict within him we get the brilliant storyline of him losing his powers and also it's, it's a kind of a metaphor for you you know he could be suffering through like depression you know and also that love sickness how it can just like affect you emotionally mentally and physically if anyone's been heartbroken or been lovesick or just 
even depressed, it can really alter your physical state. And so I think that was a really brilliant arc for the character where he's literally lost his powers because of how improperly he's living his life. Yeah, he doesn't want to be Spider-Man anymore. Even that doctor with the Grateful Dead t-shirts, like, <laughs> you maybe, hate that doctor. Maybe you're not some... You hate no, him. I'm sorry. <laughs> if I have a doctor, you better have a suit and tie on. Like, I don't, I don't care, like, what school you went to, just... And do not sit down next to me on the bed. Yeah, and also, if you're my medical doctor, don't try to psychoanalyze me. That's not, <laughs> I'm not paying you for that. You don't try to give me a prescription for any BS that you're going to spell it out, all right? <laughs> Tell me if I have high blood pressure and let's leave it at that. <laughs> you're a pediatrician. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but <laughs> Peter, you know, because he doesn't want to be Spider-Man anymore, he tries to go back to being Peter Parker. And we see how dorky again Peter Parker really is supposed to be. And he, Toby nails dorky Peter Parker more than any other yeah. actor that's done it before. He's such a nerd. He really is. Nerd alert, man. But his relationships in this film with all the main characters is so much more complex. They've grown so much. And there's a lot of turmoil in each one of them because, for example, Aunt May, who is the forever moral compass in Peter's life, Peter eventually in this film confesses to Aunt May what he did and the role he played in the in the night that Uncle Ben's death occurred and how he could have stopped that mugger, but he wanted revenge for what the guy who was robbed did to him by not paying him enough money for what he was earned. Then he has the, his relationship with Harry, which they're still best friends, but Harry has this animosity towards Peter because Peter's bread and butter comes from taking pictures of his friend Spider-Man. So that's constantly a barrier between them getting closer and kind of is going to cause them to become further apart as friends. And then his relationship with MJ is different where MJ's dating, not dating Harry at this point, but MJ the astronaut. is starting to date the astronaut in this movie. And she's also on Broadway. And they're it seems like her life's perfect. And, but but also their timing for wanting the other person is so often back and forth in this film because when MJ wants Peter, Peter shuns MJ. Then when Peter wants MJ... MJ's not available, and vice versa. It happens to each of them twice in the film. And Peter is pretty clueless when it comes to relationships uh, intimately because he has that line where he goes to MJ after he's lost his powers, and he's like, I'm not an empty seat anymore. And he's like, let's pick up where we left off. And MJ's like, where do we leave off? Like, we've never dated. Yeah. <laughs> we kissed at the funeral for like two seconds. So is it. She's like, you can't get on if you can't get, you can't get off if you never got on. You know exactly. what I mean? So he's kind of clueless with like, they never even had a relationship. So he thinks that like he can just get her back because he's not Spider-Man anymore. But that life doesn't work out that easily. Yeah, he never had her. They were never yeah. together. And even Harry's like, she's waiting for you, bud, at the beginning of the film. But, yeah. You know, Peter at that point hadn't given up the role of Spider-Man responsibility of being a protector of the city. Yeah. And then also... Great analysis of all the characters, by the way. I that appreciate was a phenomenal that. job. That was not scripted. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, this movie has such a great villain in Doc Ock and Octavius and uh, Alfred Molina. I'm so glad that he's back in, in action. Heck yeah. He's awesome. He's Hello, a, Peter. Yeah. <laughs> he's a great actor, and he was the perfect choice for Doc Ock. And Octavius, you really empathize with him because, you know, he's driven – to create this groundbreaking technology which fails, but then the failure of it and the loss of his wife leads him to madness. And also he has these AI robots in his mind as well. The, all Each tentacle has an, its own AI brain and mind, so there are whispers in his head telling him what to do and influencing him. So his character has gone through a dramatic transformation, and you feel bad for 
who he's become because of the accident. Yeah, but you could see that he had a little bit of arrogance in him beforehand. So Definitely. Like, because he's like, don't worry, my calculations are correct. Uh, you can sleep soundly tonight. But he is a very interesting character because he's kind of like everything that Peter wants to be. You know, a brilliant person, but also very charming with the love of his life that he's always been with and that love is still burning and be a very successful scientist or engineer or whatever Peter wants to be. So you can see that Peter clearly looks up to him and, you know, Otto is trying to change the world with his fusion reactor. And, you know, it, it, you root for him to want to to perform this reaction successfully because that'd be so cool to produce a mini sun. And you can tell when Otto successfully creates the reaction at the at the presentation, he says that line, the power of the sun in the palm of my hand. You can already tell, like, the power of this is already getting to him. His hubris is growing immensely with the fusion reactor yeah he's beginning to think of himself like oh am i a god have I, have I changed the world in such a way that i'm godlike and so that's what forces his blindness on thinking that he can control the outbreak of the fusion reactor and what's happening when it starts to you know break apart from its his claws and starts you know not attacking mm. people but you know starts tearing things apart in the yeah. building and causes the death, death of his wife his hubris blinds him to the fact that it's not my fault I was, can, he ends up blaming spider-man in a way yeah you could probably say he, blames, see, he thinks it's spider-man's fault for unplugging it even though it was already out of control yeah, before that yeah and i love sam raimi once again shows his his skills with horror with that scene when in the hospital room when they're about to try and cut off the arms and he his arms kill all of the surgeons. Oh my god! And it's so and it's PG thirteen. He doesn't show any gore, but he's such a talented horror director where the filmmaking is the scary part of it. The sound effects, the way he shoots it, it's so terrifying. And hearing the screams, like you don't need to show gore to scare people. Yeah. And this movie's also scarier than the first one and funnier than the first one. There's a ton of great one-liners in this movie, like pizza time. He stole that guy's pizza. <laughs> and then um, my back when <laughs> when he's on the scooter heading to MJ's place so that he, uh, he's not, <laughs> I'm not going to disappoint you. And the car comes from behind him and he does the backflip and lands on his feet. Those two kids are like, how'd you do that, mister? He's like, you know, work, work, exercise, eat your green vegetables. My mom always says that, but I never believed her. I never actually believed her. But so there's like a, a bunch of funny moments like that. And also what I like about this film is Spider-Man is starting to seep into the culture of New York City. You know, you have that lady who plays on the violin, the Spider-Man songs, and obviously he's on the papers for, for JJ's uh, newsstands everywhere. The bu the Daily Bugle. It's, it, I forgot it for a moment. <laughs> but like the it's culture okay. of Spider-Man is seeping into the city. Is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? We kind of have like those, those like interview style filmmaking of them asking New Yorkers questions and they think that like, oh, he's cool. I believe in him. Yeah, they actually, in the first movie, when the New Yorkers start throwing the items at Goblin on the bridge, they put that in as, it was the last thing they filmed because they added it last second after the events of 9-11, they wanted to show a scene where New Yorkers were united. Mm -hmm. And so they put that into the film right before release. You mess with one of us, you, you mess, mess with, with all of us. <laughs> exactly. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but but in Doc Ock and Spider-Man have some of the best fights in superhero history. And like whether it be the bank fight and, and fighting on top of the skyscraper uh, with Aunt May in danger and saving her and like when he flings himself through the window. It's like so epic. But then... I just think that the train fight in this movie is just on another level in terms of the visual dynamics of it because the, the skyscraper fight's cool, but you're on a moving train speeding, and then there's the the way that they move in and out of and around the train, and when he's flying 
when he's like flying after he got hit, and then he sees like that bridge ahead of him, and he and he spins around and goes through it, and then Doc Ock's like all surprised. It's like this is amazing. And he's like on the side of it, standing on his yeah. two feet, fighting Doc Ock. It's epic. Exactly. And then we have the amazing moment when he saves the train and it it's so epic when he's just like holding all the webs and toby's just screaming like crazy like ah! and then he finally stops it in time it's such an amazing moment and i think that it has one of my favorite moments in all the spider-man movies all of them where the new yorkers bring him into the train and they like carry him inside and then one of them says oh he's just a kid he's look at him he's like he look as young as my son and then he wakes up and then they give him his mask back. We and- found something. We found something. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you the kid who played that role is like growing up. He's like gets made fun of about that line all the time. I think those are Amy's kids. We found something. <laughs> <laughs> but it's such an emotional part of the movie. And it's one of the it's one of the best sequences from start to beginning. Like that move that sequence starts on the train. And then it finishes with Doc Ock taking him. It's an amazing 15 minutes. Yeah, because Doc Ock, his character, has been completely corrupted by these mechanical arms because his, his inhibitor chip, is that what it's called? Yeah. Has been destroyed from that... Fact ele- check, yes. Yeah, fact check, yes. <laughs> Snopes, thanks. And um, <laughs> so... What's that mean, Snopes? Nothing to worry about. You don't know modern things. It's okay. You're so out of touch in the world. Anyways, because, again, Doc Ock's hubris is, is starting to grow even more now that he's has the influence of these mechanical arms he's his new goal is to just rebuild but not rebuild the fusion reactor just the way it was but to grow it bigger and bigger and even first of all does this guy have a p.o box because like where is he getting the shipments for for all this gear like to the giant half flooded theater in the ocean in the river like the docks who's delivering it where's he getting it all like this is not all made in new york city black market dealers man like he's got to have like a black market dealers okay that's where criminals get stuff all right yeah true but um also you can tell as he's starting to raise it up it's enormous and also when he eventually gets the tritium later from Harry, when he makes the deal to kill Spider-Man for the tritium, the amount of tritium he uses is a hundred times larger than it was in the original demonstration. Yeah, it's like a grapefruit compared to what was this little speck in the first It's like compared to like a pebble, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Compared to a grain of sand. (laughs) It's about the size of a a small soccer ball. (laughs) Or, you know, one of those small basketballs that kids play with. (laughs) (laughs) Had to. Anyways. <laughs> and then Danny Elfman once again killed it with this score. And I love the Doc Ock theme. Super fearful. And he, he just knocked it out of the park. The action sequences are so much fun. The music to listen to. And the movie has a lot of ups and downs and different tones. Like when Peter, he's starting to lose his powers. You know, his webbing won't work. He's starting to get like vertigo when he's standing on top of buildings. And that funny scene where he takes the elevator down. He's talking about the spidey suit with that guy. Um... Not only has he lost MJ, but he's also losing the sp- the powers from Spider-Man, which kept him from getting MJ. So he kind of loses both at the same time, which is really unfortunate for him. It's ironic. Yeah. And that, but I, that's not why he chooses to be Spider-Man again. He chooses to be Spider-Man again because, first of all, he sees that guy getting beat up in the alley and getting mugged. And then also when he saves the little girl from the burning house. Yeah. How did she get left in there? Well, it's not... No, so yes, he saves the girl as Peter Parker. That's not what motivates him to become Spider-Man. What motivates him to become Spider-Man is after he saves the yeah. After he saves the little girl, the cops say a poor soul was stuck on the third floor. And so, if Peter was Spider-Man, he would have been able to save that person as well. And so, basically, from that moment on, he decides that I have to bear the responsibility of Spider-Man now. Yeah, exactly. Great but, point. But also, 
when he's not Spider-Man and he, he bends that ability, the abilities he has, it has like a very light moment where we have like that fun song and he's like walking around and tripping yeah, over his drops, feet and yeah. like he's a great student and he's the best in his class again. So like I said, it has good ups and downs of tones that kind of keep you engaged. And also it's a really picky, it's a sticky situation where he doesn't know how to get his powers back. You know, he tries to jump off the roof of that building <laughs> and he fucking like almost dies. I'm back! I'm back! Oh, no, no! It's so funny. But also, it, what brings his powers back, I think, is obviously when um, the person he loves the most gets put into a life-threatening situation. And that's what really sparks them coming back. Yeah, absolutely. And like, it's a real danger for someone. Yeah, but there's so many great... And there's more moments, like when he throws out the Spidey suit and J.J. Jameson gets it and pins it on the walls and is... <laughs> I did like, it! He's like, I, I, the power of the press has won. He's so funny And then, then, he re, then he's in remorse. He's like, it's all my fault. <laughs> yeah, because uh, who, um, his, his MJ gets MJ taken. Gets his yeah. fiancée-in-law almost. But then when Argus. Spidey steals the suit back, he's like, he's a menace! <laughs> I'm locked up! I feel bad for the astronaut guy because he got shafted. Like, what MJ... MJ does him at the end of the movie. It's, it's the same thing as um, the Gosling Rachel McAdams movie. What's it called? The Notebook. Yeah, with that um, James Marsden's character. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. similar. Yeah. Well, she he does, she doesn't leave him at the at the altar. Yeah, that's true. That's that was a pretty awful thing by MJ to do. But Harry and, and Peter's relationship has gotten even worse to the point where Harry's only obsession now, because he lost everything with Otto after his failure of the presentation with the fusion reactor. His only goal in life is to try to find out who Spider-Man is and to kill Spider-Man. And Harry makes a deal with Otto to kill Spider-Man for the tritium. He even gives up Peter, his best friend. He doesn't know what Otto's going to do to him. He tells Otto not to kill him, but who knows what's going to happen. And so he gives up Peter to... Otto. And, and Otto just throws him into a wall. Okay, first of all, when Otto's just supposed to, like, kidnap or question Peter Parker, he throws, like you say, he throws a car at him. Like, only Spider-Man would have dodged that. So, obviously, he's Spider-Man, first of all. Otto, I thought you were a genius. This guy just dodged a car underneath a table, and you don't think he's Spider-Man? Second of all, when he grabs him with the claws, he smashes Peter into the building, into the into wall. Into a brick wall. And, like, the wall caves in. It's like brick. He should be squished like a potato. He should be a tomato on the wall. Like, how is Peter... Like, Otto, it's obvious he's, he's Spider-Man. You're not that smart guy. No wonder your fucking fusion reactor doesn't work. I would have been like, oh, man, he's, he's not a tomato. That's weird. He's not a bag of meat. What do you know? So funny and so true. Oh all, right, all right, I had to get that out of my system. Yeah. But it looks cool. That's what it comes down to. It looks badass. It, Goblin does the same thing to Mary Jane in the third one, but she's fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like rules of physics, brah, in, in a movie. <laughs> Anyways. And then the train battle, which is awesome. And I love the New York citizens saving, I mean, rescuing Peter from falling down, then kind of like getting him back and giving him his, his mask. And then the final battle of Otto, Doc Ock versus Spider-Man at his abandoned P.O. box <laughs> <laughs> underwater Shipping. what what is that place it's like got a clock tower or yeah well, it looks like um a factory a, a like harbor a, factory maybe maybe like a like, yeah yeah something like that <laughs> <laughs> with the big clock window stained glass <laughs> who knows but it's a good fight because yes P uh, peter eventually beats dr octavius but he has to convince. He eventually convinces him that the only way that that Otto has to stop the fusion reactor. He has to stop it because it's going out of control, and 
he ta- he speaks to him about intelligence. How Doc Ock told him that intelligence privilege. is a privilege; it's a gift to be used for the good of mankind. And basically, Otto will eventually drown the fusion reactor in the river to save the day. Yeah, which is pretty crazy. But and then, also- we, then we get one of the best parts of the entire trilogy is when Peter turns around and MJ is like. What? You're Spider-Man? Dude, no way. No way. <laughs> great, great moment. It's a great it, reveal. I remember when I saw it the first time, I was like, <gasps> as the, the whole audience gasped. We wanted it, for, we wanted it so bad. Yeah, it was an excellent moment. It, a great reveal. And then MJ was like, ah, oh, yeah, I knew it. Yeah. I knew it. He's going to hold that wall up. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. Yeah, it's it's a it's a great, great ending. I but, love it. Yeah, but then um, it's not quite the ending because they, oh, yeah. they're on the web and Peter has to explain to her that we can't be together because Spider-Man's gonna always to ha- going to always have no enemies. Simp. <laughs> Spider-Man's <laughs> always going to have enemies, not simps. <laughs> and so because he loves MJ so much, he's protecting her by not being with her. And she has to go back to her fiance, who she leaves at the altar. Yeah, and well, I mean, you can't marry someone if you love someone else. And so. at the same time, this is when Harry's in his study in his office, and he's hears his father's head, <laughs> and they're laughing. He throws the knife at the at the mirror, and he finds his father's secret layer of Green Goblin goodies. What a great cliffhanger! And he doesn't take the serum here. We find out in, in Spider Man Three, we watch him take the serum. But there's a great little Easter egg at the end of the film at the wedding when Harry's at the wedding in a tuxedo. He has a green bow tie. I love that. You Such point, a, yeah, you're like, oh, he's got a green bow tie. I was like, no friggin' way. I never that's, noticed that's that. That's why I get to pay the big bucks. Big bucks, I man. See the, I see the things that you didn't see because you're you're, you're, you're pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm bearable. You're bearable. <laughs> you're not, I'm not terrible. You're the bearable part. <laughs> <laughs> but she leaves him at the altar, which is pretty messed up. I feel yeah, bad for the guy. He seems like a good guy. He's an astronaut. But, he went to the moon. But I love Jonah. He's, he's going to his, he goes to his wife. He's like, call Deborah, the caterer. Tell her not to open the caviar. It's <laughs> <laughs> my favorite joke. And the final scene is MJ walking into Peter's apartment, and they and she wants to be with him. They end up together, and then he um hears the the sirens and the radio call, and he has to leave the window, and and she, he's about to leave, and she's like, "Go get him, Tiger." And every time I watch that, I'm like, that's going to get old quick. <laughs> you're never home, Peter. You're always out. Every time you hear a siren. It, I'm not calling you Tiger anymore. What if it's just like a traffic stop? Yeah. <laughs> that guy just got pulled over for speeding. You don't have to go out there. <laughs> Absolutely going to get old quick. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the, the movie foreshadows that where the movie, you think it ends on a high note. Oh, yeah. With uh, Spidey swinging through New York City with the helicopters and cars. And it's an awesome moment. But then uh, Raimi goes back to MJ and she kind of like shows like, oh, man. It's like the graduate. But, yeah, it's exactly. It's like, did I choose the wrong guy? Yeah, this is bad. <laughs> I just ran across New York City in a bridal <laughs> gr- dress and. Man, that guy left already. (laughs) (laughs) He already left me. (laughs) I guess I'll go home. (laughs) I was kind of like hoping for a little bit more, but does does she stay wait and wait for him, or does she like take the subway home? She's like asleep on his bed when he gets back. I don't know. He's like, I got a shower. I'm I'm pretty tired. Oh, you're still here. (laughs) I thought you would have left. Oh yeah. no! I love I that love you're here. You. <laughs> I love that you're here. Is this like are we living together now? <laughs> Do you want a key? <laughs> All right, let's move on to Spider-Man. Oh, we trivia. got some trivia. Trivia. This is a ridiculous episode. <laughs> when Peter Parker flips over the oncoming car, Tobey Maguire actually performed the stunt himself. 
A stuntman also did the stunt, but Sam Raimi thought McGuire's looked more natural, so he used his take instead. Toby McGuire's participation, participation, <laughs> par, par, what did I say? Participation. Participation. Toby McGuire's participation in Spider-Man 2 was in doubt at one point because he was suffering severe back pains. Jake Gyllenhaal was lined up to play Spider-Man and had already begun, begun preparation, but McGuire decided to take the part after all. However, according to the DVD commentary, the my back joke after Peter falls from the roof, roof was purely coincidental as it was written into the script before McGuire's problem arose. Jake Gyllenhaal would go on to play Spider-Man's enemy, Mysterio, 15 years later in Spider-Man Far From Home. It was rumored that he and his agent were faking it to get a higher deal, I believe but that. But then Sony was like, all right, we'll cast Jake Gyllenhaal, and then they panicked and were like, oh no, Toby's okay, he's he's fine. That's apparently what really happened. And then he's, he, what do you get for number three? I think 20 mil. That's a good amount of cheddar. Yeah. Willem Dafoe was not actually supposed to reprise his role for Spider-Man 2, but he was walking back to his apartment in New York City and saw the cast and crew filming nearby. He stopped by to the set to say hello to the filmmakers and decided to, and, and the filmmakers, upon seeing him, decided to give him a cameo appearance in the movie. Alfred Molina, who plays Dr. Octopus, Doc Ock, all actually gave names to his four mechanical tentacles, Larry, Harry, Flo, and Moe. Flo was the top right tentacle because it was operated by a female grip, and the particular tentacle was most motherly, which removed his sunglasses, which removed his glasses, and gave him sips of his drink. In 2001, four Spider-Man costumes were stolen from the, from the set of the first Spider-Man movie. They were eventually recovered after an 18-month investigation and the arrest of a former movie studio security guard and an accomplice. Columbia Pictures offered a $25,000 reward for information leading to their return. Movie memorabilia experts estimated that the value of the costumes was $50,000 each. Danny Elfman, who did the... Danny Elfman, who did the film score for Spider-Man's 1 and 2, as well as several other films by Sam Raimi, had some sort of falling out with the director during the course of Spider-Man 2 and has been quoted to saying, To see such a profound ch negative change in a human being was almost enough to make me feel like I didn't want to make films anymore. However, Raimi and Elfman reunited nine years later for Oz the Great and Powerful in 2013. So that's why he didn't do Spider-Man 3. Who knows what happened between the two of them? Yeah, Raimi must have been a jerk to him. Probably. Or yeah. maybe Elfman was a jerk to him. Oh. Probably Raimi. Yeah, probably Raimi. You know, that's what happens to a lot of directors. They get that, you know, I made the most successful movie ever, you know. Yeah. Oh, well. well it seems like they're buds again. Yeah. If you look closely at Peter Parker's apartment, you can see the picture that he took of Mary Jane, that he took of Mary Jane just before he was bitten by the radioactive spider. This was supposed to represent the last moment of innocent in Peter Parker's life before it changed forever. In Spider-Man 2, when Peter dumps his Spider-Man suit in a garbage can, it's an exacting homage to a panel from Spider-Man No More, issue number 50 from The Amazing Spider-Man. As in the film, the outfit is found and brought to J. Jonah Jameson, then reclaimed by Spider-Man, who leaves a note like the one in the movie. That's all my trivia. All right, let's move on to Spider-Man 3 after you tell us about some movie poster stuff. MoviePosters.com is the number one place to get your posters online today. Use our special promo code RAIDERS15OFF to get 15% off your order today. If you're a fan of movies, if you're a fan of TV shows, there's no better way to express that love than by decking your place out with a ton of movie posters from MoviePosters.com. If you're looking at our set online on YouTube, you'll see that we have a ton of these amazing posters. High quality. They have pretty much every film imaginable all sorts of sizes, framing, backlighting, whatever you want. 
MoviePosters.com has it. Again, go to MoviePosters.com and use our promo code Raiders15OFF to get 15% off your order today. Now on to Spider-Man 3, which came out in 2007. And although this is the worst of the three, this still made a ridiculous amount of money. I, let's see what its box office is. 850 mil? $894 million box office on a budget of $258 million, which is absurd. The second one, I didn't say it, it made $788 million. So still one of the most profitable films of all time, you could say. But this tra- this movie had great trailers. Yeah, and great trailers. marketing. Yeah. The, the trailers were awesome. And the concept, you could say, was really good, but there are t- a ton of issues with this movie. Um, first, obviously, no Danny Elfman. And... There's just too many villains that are forced on top of us. Too many characters that disappear for huge amounts of time in the film. For example, like Gwen Stacy is in the film pretty early on, but then you don't see her for like 40 minutes. Then she pops up. You're like, I forgot Gwen Stacy was in this movie. Same thing happens with M- uh, Eddie Brock. And sem- same thing happens with the symbiote, which you sh- it shows up in the opening of the movie. You think it's going to be an important role, but then we're 40 minutes in and it's done nothing. It's yeah. like kind of just had a couple shots here and there. So it's just overstuffed with characters and plot lines that are forced onto us that don't really actually connect uh, cohesively. It feels like two movies were crammed into one movie. And this movie, had it went off, it got off to a good start. The first sure. 30 minutes is great. Absolutely. Like that fight between Harry and Peter is epic. When And then Peter's just in his normal like suit and tie and he's battling the new goblin who has this great new tech and gear, and the fight is epic. It's, it's so, so good. It's so well done. It's so visceral, and I just really adore that fight. But after that, once Harry gets amnesia, this whole movie becomes like a melodramatic soap opera. Yep. Once you throw in ridiculous things like a main character getting amnesia, it's like suspension of disbelief is gone. It's like, really? And I, th- I think that the filmmakers... Because, like you said, it's so overstuffed with a lot... It's not just villains, but a lot of characters and a lot of new ones and a lot of storylines. They had to, like, take a break from other characters to get the other characters' screen time. Like, Harry getting amnesia is kind of a cop-out in a cheap way to not have to address Harry being an evil for another hour of the movie until he gets his memory back when he, like, walks into the den. So I think that the filmmakers use a bunch of cheap tricks like that and just lazy storytelling to really propel all of these storylines together in just like this big mess. Yeah. So Sam Raimi was drawing from a treatment written by his brother Ivan, which had originally intended for Flint Marco, a.k.a. the Sandman, to serve as the movie's primary antagonist with the Vulture acting as a secondary villain. However, producer Avi Arad pressured Sam Raimi to include Venom, a far more popular character among modern comic book fans. And that's clearly the biggest issue here is I love Venom, but he kind of sucks in this movie. He doesn't show up until the third act, really. And he's just the symbiote you forget about through the entire course of the film. And there's just, again, I don't care about Flint Marco in this movie. His character is just, they try to force so much empathy on us with his character, with his with his daughter, which is tragic. It's so sad that he became a villain because he's trying to pay for his daughter's hospital bills. But still, who's the main villain in this movie? I don't know. Why, why did the first two work? They have a main villain. This one has four kind of villains three villains like who is it and it's it's difficult to like really grasp or really understand anyone and really get behind their actions and i this i think the symbiote was a good idea and i think venom probably would have been the strongest solo villain for this movie i think that if it was 
Venom was the un- villain B, and then Harry was villain A in this movie. I think that would have worked out really well. Because even, even, even the Sandman, if he was the solo villain, Raimi still would have made him the um, responsible for Uncle Ben's death, which I did not like how... You know, they're they're like, oh, actually, this guy was the reason why Uncle Ben died. And I was like, what? Come on. Yeah, it's kind of weak. Same thing like with, with uh, Harry. It's like a cop-out. Yeah. Because give you give what they could have at least put Harry in a coma. Like, even put him in a coma, and then he yeah. comes back later on. But I just think that having Harry, like, you set up, you established Harry and set him up to be this great villain for, for movie three. You made these first two films. His storyline is great. And again, the first act of the movie, because yeah. he's like watching Peter and like the look he gives him from the opera box, he's like, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna get yeah. after him. Yeah, it's, it's great. Awesome. Yeah. Tons of tension. But then they just diffuse it all. And they're just like, you know what? You know how he's a bad guy? Let's just make him like a nice, goofy, fun James Silly, Franco. Smiling all the time. Yeah. Like and the thing with it is if he has a split personality disorder and is you could say possessed by the performance enhancer serum, where is that? Yeah, does the he just lost that identity inside of his brain, which has corrupted him? That part really doesn't make any sense because even if he lost his memory about Peter and his death in how his father died, he still has the goblin serum in him, so he should still have psycho psychopathic tendencies and intense rage yeah and horrible rage and and he just is like a goofball for like an hour of this movie so it really doesn't make sense making omelets dancing around yeah it's kind of silly and they missed a huge opportunity where I think it would have been cool if like what if Harry like really destroys his life and although yes he does get MJ to break up with him which also doesn't make any sense like why doesn't MJ just go to Peter like hey Harry's a bad guy. Can you just fight him and beat him up? Like, yeah. He's Spider-Man. <laughs> Your boyfriend's Spider-Man. Just be like, yo, fight Harry. He's bad now. <laughs> he's in the bushes over there. He told he's, me to break up with you. He's, he's right there. He's literally watching us I'm behind sure that tree. I'm sure he won't be able to stop you because he doesn't have his surfboard. And you're Spider-Man. Yeah. You could mess him up so, right now. Yeah. He's Again, he's behind the tree. Yeah. Yonder. Just take, go just take him up. Mess him up. Just web him. Yeah. Can just you web shoot, him in that shoot tree? Shoot web him in the face. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> so that also, that didn't make sense. But like Harry, I think it would have been cool if like, he stayed a villain the whole time, and like he has this manip- manipulative plan to destroy Peter's life. And also, it would have been cool if he exposed Peter's identity as Spider-Man. Like he could, they had so much opportunity for Harry to be a really great villain. Yeah, and again, the first half of the, the first thirty minutes of this movie, it's really good. You know, it opens up where everything is going great for Peter, a little too great. Hey, that's Raph. <laughs> a little too, too Raph. He's, but you know, so he's he's acing his classes. He's topping his class. He's Spider Man. He's in a wonderful relationship with MJ, the girl of his dreams. He even has college bullies. Like if you're bullying people in college, bro, go, get a life. Up. Get a life. Grow like up. what? That you're, you're shooting spitballs at people, and you're you're 19, 20 years old. What's that guy even doing in that class? Anyways? And then the it's other one shooting with, if with he's the, in it. Yeah. Either way, but still, the first thirty minutes is great, and then we're setting up the great villain of of Harry. It's so good. And then it just takes a dive. Then we get Flint Marco. So yeah, Flint, again, a, a villain that they really forced onto us in this movie. And I'm sure that the original treatment that they wrote, I bet it was more interesting with that they do it. It had to have been because Flint doesn't do much except for fighting in this film. And he has like a couple of scenes when he goes outside his daughter's apartment. And But I will say the Sandman transformation is a really great scene. Yeah, it's cool. But yeah. also, what the hell are they even doing out there? I don't know. Because they did not explain that. Because they did the spinny thing. And then there's the a bunch of thing. there's a bunch of sand, and then like they just left the sand there. Like what tests were they running? Yeah, they didn't check they didn't anything. explain it. Yeah, like there's no camera that saw a guy form by sand. <laughs> 
They weren't recording anything? I don't know, man. But they have this giant apparatus that creates, what, molecular deconstruction or something like that? I guess so. Who knows? (laughs) Also, his daughter is BB from Kill Bill, too. Same actress. BB! BB! I would have had BB! BB. (laughs) But, you know, you do empathize with him a little bit. I think they push it a little too hard. You know, his daughter's sick and he's trying to... They made it to the point where, like, he accidentally shot Uncle Ben and it's like, come on. Like, so now he's just just a good guy? Come on. He's not really a bad guy, man. But, you know, Peter... He's going through different stages of his life that he maybe never predicted would happen. For example, Spider-Man is now beloved by everyone in the city. And he has that parade and everything. And they're all in love with him. He gets the key to the city. Whereas MJ, she her latest performance on Broadway got terrible reviews. She gets fired from her play, from her performances. She's secretly working as a waitress and jazz singer without telling Peter. So while everything in Peter in Peter's personal life with Spider-Man is just better than ever, and he's more loved than ever, MJ's personal life or, or professional life is going downhill constantly. And so MJ never really doesn't he doesn't she doesn't tell Peter that, but she kind of expects Peter to be more understanding of her and her needs at the time. And he's not noticing. You know, he's exactly too, he's too distracted by the fame and the fun he's having as Spider-Man. Yeah. It's like uh very much clouding his judgment and he's not being a good boyfriend at all. And kissing Gwen Stacy with the kiss, that's yeah. dude, Peter, that what are like, you doing? That was like, what the hell, man? That was your kiss with MJ, man. I can't believe it. It was awful. I was pretty upset with him when he did that. I actually can understand why MJ kissed Harry after that. Yeah, I can, for sure. Yeah. She kissed he kissed the girl first. Yeah. He he did their kiss. Yeah. That was a special kiss. Very special. Well, she also did it with the astronaut, too, kind of. It was before they were together. Yeah, though. I know, but <laughs> she, did it, she did it before. She didn't know it was Peter, though. But she did it to realize Recreate that she that was feeling. No, to realize she wasn't in love with the astronaut. Yeah. Oh, I understand why she did it. So so basically <laughs> what happened in that scene was she said, <laughs> please explain it. Tilt your head back. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's but move on. But you know, this, there is some cool stuff. You know, there's the black Spider-Man suit, and and I, I really love when he gets like that enhanced power and but also like their version of peter being dark there peter starts out the dark peter starts out good when he yells at his landlord and he's very aggressive then it just takes a nosedive into emo peter parker and he becomes just like a weird guy very weird guy dancing around in the middle of the street and i know they're doing this for laughs but like when it comes to that jazz club dance routine and he's playing piano, like in complex jazz piano. Like, it doesn't make any sense, and it's very cringy. It's like, so what? The the embryo just makes people like jazz assholes. I don't <laughs> understand it. And like, he just he has this amazing dance routine, and he's like jumping on the tables, and it's like, it just it was just so weird. It just took you out of the movie completely. Yeah, it's odd. I don't really like it that much at all. And there, but I mean, Bully McGuire. Is we got the Bully Maguire meme. It's out of worth it. it for all yeah. the memes that we've got. Yeah. It's it's pretty epic. The gifts and the memes of him and the YouTube videos that people make and just inserting those scenes in his faces into so many different movies. It's it's great what they do. Yeah, the bully memes are amazing. I love how they put them into like when he's fighting like villains in other movies. Yeah. <laughs> he's like always dancing around. But like you said, Peter's so oblivious to MJ and her feelings. And for example, he thinks everything's going great. And he's, he's got a ring from Aunt May that he's going to propose to her with. And he, he wants to propose to her at that French restaurant. But everything goes wrong because 
it ends in a fight and she's like how could you how could you quit kiss Gwen Stacy because Gwen Stacy shows up and apparently Gwen's his lab partner which she's never he's never brought up and they're buds and they're friends and he kissed her and she asks him was it Peter or was it Spider-Man who kissed Gwen Stacy and maybe Peter doesn't even know himself ooh then she goes and makes some omelet with Harry. Gotta go make that omelet. Yeah. Because she's looking for someone to console her because she's going through much in her, so much in her life. And Harry's an old friend and, you know, they do have a history together. But she needs someone. She just needs someone to listen to her. Yeah. Harry, and Peter's not being that right now. He's being a crappy boyfriend. He's being an anti-simp. He's being a simp <laughs> for Spider-Man. <laughs> and then Eddie Brock, uh, he kind of shows up out of nowhere like 40 minutes into the movie. <laughs> And played by Topher Grace. I think Topher is a really good actor, and I love him on that 70s show and stuff, but I'm not a huge fan of Eddie Brock in this movie. Um, he's the new photographer of the Daily Bugle. is competing for that job with Peter. And it's weird how the story tries to build empathy for Eddie Brock, despite the fact that he lied and created that manipulated photo to win the the job at the Daily Bugle. And, like, he uses that as an excuse to just do evil things, like, and to get revenge on Peter. It's like, bro, you just made a fake photo for for a newspaper yeah like he is he thinks that he's he blames it on peter but it was his own doing so i also didn't like that about the character like he should have just been like I, like a nefarious character to begin with yeah and i i feel bad for Topher grace he quit that 70s show to be in this movie that's why they replaced him remember yeah who did they replace them with i can't some, remember some guy this wasn't the same it was not the same but it's like they're all still at his yeah, house yeah it was like what and none of them on? lived there yeah <laughs> was it like his cousin or something in the show i remember but um, but Topher, so he quit that semi show. That's why he's not in the last season, so he could be Venom. And I think that because of how people did not like this movie and people did, were not happy with how Venom was portrayed in this movie, I think that really affected him uh, being an actor in Hollywood for a while. Because when you get bad press and people aren't satisfied with something you did, um, I think that can affect you getting roles. And so I think that's why he kind of disappeared for a while. Yeah, it's not his fault. That's yeah. the way the character's written. And yeah. I'm I'm sure like hardcore fans even hated it worse and made it seem like it was like a bad performance. But he's yeah. not a bad performer. He's, he's not, not a bad. bad yeah. It's just the character isn't that great compared to Tom Hardy's character and the way they do Venom now is just exceptional. Yeah, I'm very, I, I might be, this Venom's new movie might be my most anticipated superhero movie. Going forward year. for the year? Yeah. It, it, if think, it comes out this year, they yeah. keep delaying it. I believe it will be... October, I think. But there are rumors of it being delayed again into oh, November really? and even maybe 2022. But it's awesome because Andy Serkis is directing it. Which is going to be cool. Yeah, so I, I'm very excited to see that. It's going to be rated R. Let's so, go. So they're going to show That's Venom eating people. And so Harry's plan now is to, like his father taught him, when he gets his memory back, he looks at his father's portrait and he touches the mirror. All he had to do was touch the magic mirror to get his, his memories no, back. No, he got the memory back when he walked into the room and saw the portrait. I think that they... Then that it flashed back. They kind of did a hint where Peter tries to get him to get away from his portrait of his father to maybe not rekindle those feelings inside of his head. He never saw another photo of his father I guess at not. all? I guess not. For like the last but month? But he gets all the memories. He's like, let's attack the heart. And so again, he decides to have MJ break up with him like we talked about earlier on. And, you know... They eat pie. They eat pie and he does that. <laughs> I love the wink that he does when he looks back at Harry. I mean, he looks back at Peter. But like you said, doesn't she think that Peter can take Harry? Yeah, she just thinks like, it's, it's Spider-Man, come on. And then also, Peter and Aunt May are told that this new guy... Flint Marco. Flint Marco is the real killer. <laughs> I already forgot his name. That's how little I care about him in this movie. <laughs> and and Peter, he's he start he changes like a lot in this movie, even without the symbiote suit. He's like very aggressive and he acts really aggressively when the when the 
police commissioner like tells him the truth about the situation and then he goes on a mission to try to find flint and kill him himself which he thinks he succeeds at and then flint and goblin once Topher graces eddie brock gets the gets the symbiote attached to him they decide to team up to stop spidey oh yeah somehow we found him in the middle of the city in an alleyway <laughs> for first 10 minutes of looking too <laughs> but i mean it is a pretty cool third act um but although once again mj is the screaming damsel in distress and like i said they didn't she didn't even want to scream while making the movie so they used her dubbed audio from the last two movies to put it into this film so you can understand like here i am screaming again okay but also but it's great special effects for the time great cgi of the sandman and spider-man and, and harry and peter parker team up yeah. and they go one they go one on two on two two on two yeah <laughs> one on one it's getting late <laughs> And we don't, we don't, we, we're not lying. We don't love this movie. It's not an amazing movie. It's disappointing. Once yeah. I'm, I'm telling you, the first 30 minutes are great. Yeah. And then it just falls off a cliff. And again, like symbiote, we're waiting like an hour plus into the movie to see what happens with the symbiote. Venom, like, Venom should be, should have been established within 40 minutes. Should have been the main villain. Yeah. It could have, if you have Venom as the main villain, and then you have Harry and, and Peter team up at the end after they have their fights to stop Venom. And if they made Venom like really big, like much bigger, he's he like still the same size as Spider Man. Yeah, he was very non threatening looking at sometimes. Yeah, and just have Venom earlier. Venom's really only in what like ten minutes of the movie, yeah, fifteen minutes that. of the movie. It's disappointing because he's all over the trailers. And you, when I saw the trailers going in, I was like, oh, the Black Spider Man suit is, is awesome. The duality of the characters fascinating. Then we have Venom. This is gonna be epic. And then also with more Venom, you could you could play with the duality of the Venom character like they do in the Tom Hardy one, yeah. where Venom is its own entity in mind inside of Eddie. Brock. You could probably well after Spider-Man three for like a decade, we'd all been dying for a good take on Venom, and we finally got it with the with Tom Hardy's Venom. Yeah, the, the Tom Hardy's Venom. It's not a perfect movie, but I think that it was a great first movie for that franchise, and I think that I'm. It's gonna be. They're gonna really knock it out of the park with the next oh, one. I had a blast watching that movie. Yeah, it, it's super funny. Yeah, it's a good time. Uh, you got anything else? Um, yeah, I mean, this movie, like you said, it's just it was underwhelming. And you, I understand why they didn't do a fourth one. Yeah, we can go even more into it. You know, Harry dies. He sacrifices himself to save Peter, even though he could have probably just jump kicked Venom. Venom. Yeah, he he jumped in front of Venom rather than like just kicking like, him. You're, kick. you're a goblin. Like yeah. kick him. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, Peter and MJ, you know, they end up together at the end. They get back to each other and they they rekindle their love. You can assume. Yeah. And yeah, that's that. Unfortunately, they didn't make a Spider-Man four. It seemed like you know they had a script. Toby and they Sam Raimi, they were signed on to do it, both Toby and Sam. Uh, the studio pulled the plug on the very last minute. I believe he was going to have the lizard as the main villain. It got scrapped, and they decided to reboot it with Andrew Garfield as the Amazing Spider-Man. And we'll never know the plot because they all signed non-disclosure agreements. So hmm. I wish we I wish we could like read a story plot or something like that. My guess is because they were in... They were in pre-production. They were getting ready to go. My guess is that the studio stopped it because of money. Because Toby and Sam, eh, they probably could have demanded a lot of money. I think they were getting 50 mil each. Yeah, so I think that studio was like, you know what? We can just start over and pay a director 2 mil and play and pay a new actor uh, 200,000. And still make yeah. $600 million. Yeah, so I think it was definitely a money contracts thing for them to reboot it. Probably. You want to do some fun facts? I would love to. Sam Raimi was deeply unhappy with how the film turned out. He had hoped that the planned fourth film would have made up for it, but like we just said, it never happened. Bryce Dallas Howard performed her own stunts during the crane accident scene, unaware that she was pregnant at the time of filming. That's a pretty epic scene. That's cool. Yeah. 
Not only was the fourth installment planned, but also a fifth and sixth installment were planned as well, which is why, again, like I said, Toby and Sam were probably caking in some money, so they were like, we can't afford this. The photograph of Mary Jane next to Peter's police scanner is the picture he took of her at the science exhibit in Spider-Man. <laughs> I said that last time. Did you? Yeah. I don't listen to you when you talk, man. <laughs> so I, I, thought that, I thought that was obvious. <laughs> when you're saying facts, I'm just like zoned out. Zoned out. Yeah, you're not even listening. I understand. But I'll just, I'll just cut that so they don't have to hear the same fact twice. Real sand was used for Sandman, except when characters were being buried or covered in sand. Since real sand would have been po- a possible hazard for such scenes, ground-up corn cobs were used instead. Yeah, you don't want to get that sand in your eye. Or die. Yeah. <laughs> That's all I got for trivia. Yeah, I mean, let's just finish this up. Thanks so, <laughs> thanks so much for tuning in to our episode of the Spider-Man Trilogy. Um, be sure to become a patron at patreon.com slash readers of lost podcast wherever you're tuning in around the world we really appreciate your support and listening every day and you're the best take care everyone bye thanks so much for tuning in to Raiders of the Lost podcast be sure to subscribe if you're new hit the like button leave a comment find us on all audio streaming platforms Spotify Apple Podcasts Google Podcasts wherever you listen to podcasts you can find us find us on Twitter TikTok Instagram Raiders of the Lost podcast be sure to check out one of these other videos right here for more content on our favorite films and breaking down all kinds of movie content thanks so much